Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. You know, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. A good leader, a great leader, is a good wingman. Yeah, you know, when you're <clears throat> in that relationship and things are not going right, or you're out at a picnic or an event and things are not going right, and you need somebody to back you up. You need somebody to got your back. You need somebody to be looking out for you when you're not so good at looking out for yourself. That's a good wingman. And I believe that a great leader is also a good wingman. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast. And I can tell you through the course of my life, because I've never been a really big guy, but I've always had a really big mouth, <clears throat> a bit of a smart aleck. I remember in high school, right after driver's ed one day, the whole school was shut down. There was nobody on campus, nobody I could find anyway. And mom was supposed to pick me up at a certain time and she wasn't there. And it was about a three mile walk home. And I wasn't up for that. So I decided I was going to stand outside the school until I found somebody to let me into the school so I could get into the principal's office to make a phone call because this was long before the days of cell phones. I mean, it was right after the Flintstone bird tapping on a stone and you had to have a buzzard carry it, to, it was somewhere between there and cell phones. And so I was waiting to make a phone call to my mom and every door into the building was locked. I was a little stressed out. But as I'm standing on the sidewalk waiting to figure out how I'm going to get her to come get me or begin to walk home, a car pulls up. Seven guys step out of the car and all of them are Hispanic and I don't speak any Spanish. And they came at me and started saying a bunch of stuff to me in Spanish that I didn't understand. And then one of them speaks to me in English and I recognized him, but I didn't know him well. And he says to me, are you seeing so-and-so? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, you need to back off. She's my girlfriend. Being a little bit of a smart aleck, I said, well, maybe you should tell your girlfriend that because she asked me out. And that was when the knives came out and they began to advance a little further. And then out of nowhere, this hand comes over my shoulder. It was like Shaq's hand. I mean, this, the thumb was in the middle of my back and the fingers came down past my collarbone. It was an enormous hand. And whoever that hand belonged to, spoke to them in Spanish in this deep, rumbling voice. And they all turned around and ran. One of them didn't even take his knife with him. It fell on the sidewalk. And they ran, they got in their car, and they left. And when I turned around, I was eye to eye with a belly button. And I looked up at this enormous guy. And he looks at me and he says, My name is Matthew. I'm a friend of your sister's. They won't be back. And I was like, Yes, I can get away with anything. I have a big bodyguard. But see, good leadership is always looking out for you when you find yourself in trouble. And it's not always the, the wiseacre trouble. It's not always because you're a smart mouth or because you're doing something wrong. Sometimes you find yourself in trouble because you're just a little over your head with the number of tasks that you have to do. It's overwhelming. Sometimes you get dumped on it. I would ask you in a crowd to raise your hand if you've been one of those in the last three to five years with the COVID layoffs and the change in the workforce who found yourself required to do the work of three people. 
you're not just doing your job. You're doing your job and the person beside you's job and, and the person they trained, their job too. And this list just keeps going on. And you're not exactly sure why that is, but it ain't changing anytime soon. And it doesn't look like you're going to get any relief from the work that you have to do either. Well, that's a bit of a challenge. And if you have good leadership, then like a good wingman or somebody who's got your back in a potential confrontation, a good leader is going to say, we need to re-diversify that load. We need to really focus on what are the assets this individual brings to the table? What are their great levels of competency? What is it that they're best at? And how can we keep only that work in front of them? It's the tyranny that says, I'm just going to dump it on you and expect you to survive. It's the tyrannical management that says, my only job is to see that all the work is done. And as a manager or a leader, I shouldn't have to do the work, just find someone else who will. And if you won't do the work, I will find someone else who will. That's kind of their attitude. That's not great leadership. It might be sufficient management, but it's not great leadership. See, great leadership says, I don't want my team to be over, so overburdened that they can't do the job well. I don't want them to be so overwhelmed that we begin to lose ground in the areas of customer service, etc. My wife and I grabbed a quick lunch recently at a, a local restaurant. Nothing spectacular, just typical go to the counter, order your food, sit down, wait for him to bring it out kind of thing. And while we were there, we realized that the gentleman who was running the front counter, all the cash register, taking all the orders, was also the same person expected to stock all the cups and the straws and keep up with the trash cans, and also the person bussing all the tables and picking up the trash that was left behind, and also the person who was expected to pick up the food when it was delivered to the counter by the kitchen staff and deliver it to the people at the front. And when you've got a line of people waiting for food and a line of people waiting to order their food and you've got dirty tables, then that's why nobody can sit down yet. You've got a bit of a problem. The irony was, while this one person was trying to handle that, there were four people in the back kind of halfway doing their job and halfway on their cell phones and halfway just chatting. And none of them really committed enough to say anything other than, hey, you got somebody at the counter or hey, there's food to pick up. But that's, that's not good leadership. And if there's a manager somewhere, unless, sadly, of course, it could be the one person doing all the work. If there's a manager somewhere, <clears throat> a great leader somewhere, they would, they would quickly identify that we have people who have way too much time in their hands and need more work, and one person who is way overwhelmed and needs more help. And if we can't shift the level of responsibilities from some of those people with too much time on their hands, then maybe we need to shift the person to not have so much time on their hands while on the clock. But see, that's about good leadership. It's great leadership that realizes you might be in over your head. Recently, there was a, a meme. I, I saw the photo. I didn't see the video of a swim coach while her competitive swimmer was in the water. And she realized she's been under way too long. That turn should not have taken that, that much time. She jumped in fully clothed into the, into the lane, swam to her, pulled her aside, she had stopped breathing. She was unconscious. She was sinking, sinking to the bottom. Not like the commercial, what are you sinking about? She was sinking to the bottom. She was in the process of drowning and she was rescued by her coach. 
How many people can honestly say that as they've watched their children at swim lessons that the swim coach was paying close enough attention to notice when one was in trouble? Not on the phone, not chit-chatting with other lifeguards or swim coaches, but paying honest, sincere attention to the potential risk. See, a great leader not only knows when you're already in trouble, but has the foresight to recognize what might lead to trouble. What kind of personality traits do you have that could lead to trouble? What skill sets are you lacking that could lead to trouble? Where are your competencies weak that could lead to trouble? All of these are the kinds of things that a great leader is very astute about and very busy about making sure those things don't get out of control. A lazy leader blames that on the one who's incompetent. I love the way John Maxwell says that I, I have since the first time I heard him say it. We tend to hire people for what they know, competencies, competencies their knowledge, skills, and abilities, their KSAs. We hire them for those because the resume looks good, because they've done the job before. They have the specialty knowledge in the industry. That's what we hire people for. But what do we fire them for? We fire them for who they are. We tend to fire people because of the character flaws that they have, the overwhelming ego that they have, the lack of concern for others, the missing empathy, the inability to be human or focus on customer service. The character flaw that says, I'll steal, I'll embezzle, I'll lie, I'll manipulate, I'll control. See, all of those are not the what that they're capable of, but the who that they are. As John says, we tend to hire people for what they know and fire them for who they are. If you've got somebody on your team who is a great person, they're diligent, they do everything they know how to do to the best of their ability. They do it with excellence. They try hard. They're kind to the people around them. They show up on time. They have a strong work ethic. But they're missing some things in skills. As a great leader, that's your job, to recognize those things, to recognize maybe you've assigned them some tasks that are outside of their wheelhouse or outside of their competency, beyond their ability to do, just because they've never been taught to do. At that moment, you're like that swim coach. It's time for you to jump in the water, to go to where they are, and to provide them with the assistance they need. Maybe it's upskilling them. It's training them in something else. It's adding to their repertoire. But it's your job as the leader to do that. They can't do it themselves. If they could, <clears throat> they would have already done so. But the fact that they need help isn't a sign of their failure. It's a sign that it's time for you to get involved. Great leaders jump off the edge into the fray when it's necessary. Sometimes they lend their own skill, their own competency, their own knowledge. Sometimes they provide extra training. Sometimes, to be honest with you, it's not much more than emotional support. It's a matter of saying, I realize you were doing all you can and it wasn't enough. And I want to jump in here with you and get behind you and push. I want to stand behind you and let you know I got your back if this gets ugly. Or I'm going to stop it before it does. That's what a great leader does. Weak leaders, they don't have the capacity to do that. They don't have the empathy to do that. They don't have the concern for others to do that. No, they're, they're willing to let you fry on your own. And in the end, they'll find a way to blame you for everything that went wrong. And 
save themselves. They might even blame you for things that you didn't do that had nothing to do with what ultimately failed that, well, they just didn't want to take the blame for it themselves. I've been there. I've been blamed for other people's failures. I've had to carry the load of bailing out myself and others in the process. It's not fun. But sadly, it was predicted. Yeah. When I left a company and had a great interview with the CEO as I was leaving, he said, you know, your, your biggest challenge going into this new place, if you take the job in corporate America, is that you're going to find your level of excellence is significantly higher. Your expectations for yourself and others is higher than the average person you're going to work with. And he said, I, I want to make a prediction that within the first year, you're going to find yourself in a place where you've done some great things and others have taken or received the credit for it. I also predict that there's going to be a time that you will have done nothing wrong, but you're going to take the blame for it. You're going to take the hit. You're going to take the fall. And it'll probably sound something like, well, you're so strong as a person, as a, as a, a producer, that this isn't going to hurt you much, where the other person, it'll be devastating. It was almost as if he were a prophet because the words that he spoke less than a year later came to be so remarkably true, they were almost quoted from the book. It was almost like the manager had heard him say those words because he said nearly the same words. I was performing at 300% of my expected performance in sales. 300%. And when we got to the place where it made a huge difference as to whether I would be rewarded for that 300% or not, the 300% was redistributed. All the sales, all the classifications were redistributed to other people on the team, one in particular who probably would have lost her job had she not received some of the help, which really just looked like taking accounts that had really fallen under her name and moving them under my name so that we both looked like we were on par. It's called redistribution of wealth. Others call it socialism or communism. It's kind of a, we don't all have to do the same level of work. One person can carry the load and everybody gets the benefit. Not a great way to lead. Caused me to leave the company for a period of time because I wasn't up for that. I wasn't really excited about doing all the work and having somebody else share in the rewards. Not that I'm not a team player, but if you're not going to do your part, you shouldn't get the rewards. I'm a little selfish that way. See, a great leader recognizes that because that kind of behavior on the part of the manager made the manager look really good. That leader was able to reach all their bonuses and all their goals because although my great accomplishment at 300% would have made very little difference in their income. The fact that they didn't lose another person did look really good on their income, made a big difference in the overall goals of the region. That's pretty significant. It's also a huge disincentive for those who are willing to work really, really hard. And it's a great incentive to motivate those to continue to do very little. That's a tough spot to be in as a leader when your results, your outcome, your performance checks, your bonuses are based on so many people. It only takes one or two to bring them down. But if you have one or two that are capable of bringing everybody else up, you might as well take advantage of that, right? Wrong. You should step into the fray with those who can't keep up, those who are struggling. 
Is it a skill set problem? Is it an attitude problem? Is it a competency problem? Is it a training problem? That's what you should be solving. Not solving in the end results by redistributing the successes. You should be solving the problem of why are they not all succeeding to the same level? How did they get the job if they have no competence? Well, if they have the competence to get the job, then the competence to succeed at the job, to excel at the job, that shouldn't be that much of a stretch. A great leader should be able to recognize that you're in over your head, that you're drowning, and come to your rescue to save your life before you find yourself without a job. But they should also have the skill set to ask the real question, what went wrong? How did we get here? I don't know. Did the swimmer hit her head on the side of the pool and knock herself unconscious in her turn? Did she spin too fast and over-G the inside of her head? I don't know what happened. I don't know why she blacked out. I don't know why she stopped swimming. I don't know why she was sinking. I don't know the answer to that question because I'm not a swim coach. That's not my wheelhouse. It's not my competency. But I can tell when you're on the stage and you've lost control of the crowd. I can tell when you're in the middle of a meeting as a leader and you've lost control of the room because you're not emotionally connected to anybody in the room and they're not listening to you. I can help you with those things. Just like the swim coach, I can dive right in there and help you to figure out some of the things that went wrong and what could go right and what minor changes would be necessary to correct that. That's what I do as a leadership and communications coach. But the coach who stands on the sideline and watches their swimmer drown The manager who doesn't know how to fix the problem so that a redistribution of success is not necessary. The leader who's unwilling or unable to detect when someone on their team is in over their head. Well, they should be redistributed to another place because they're not succeeding in the role of leadership, coaching, or mentoring that they should be. No, I I think if they are so self-interested that they can only use the successes to redistribute and protect themselves, to pad their own income, to provide an opportunity for them for the future. That's failure in leadership. It's failure in management. That's not a good coach. That's not somebody you want to spend your time following or listening to their instruction. They're not doing you well. They're serving themselves. And a self-serving leader, well, that's not a leader because leadership is service. How are you serving the people around you? How well do you recognize their levels of competence versus incompetence? How quick are you to identify the skill sets that they need to level up, get some extra training in, get some extra help in? How aware are you of their levels of empathy and understanding, whether it's customer service or it's team management? Do you recognize those things as a leader? If you're struggling with those things, it's time that you get a coach, get a mentor. At minimum, grab a book on leadership and dig in a little bit and refresh yourself on how you got to where you are. I don't care where you are in your leadership, whether you're leading a family, leading a small group, leading a business, or running a multinational company, or serving in politics. The principles of leadership still apply. You ought to dive into the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership and make sure that you have dug through all of those principles. Maybe pick up the golden rules from Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Some really good foundational principles. Maybe you know all those things so well that you've forgotten to use them. (laughs) Maybe you've never studied them at all. But if you're going to be a great leader, you're going to have to be willing to dive into the deep end from time to time when it looks like one of your team members is drowning. You're going to have to be able to recognize their overwhelm and prescribe 
a solution to prevent it from happening again. That's all on you. You're the leader. That's your job. Get to it. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast, or Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom. And so I joined Toastmasters. And I went from Toastmasters as a newbie. In fact, Jim and I joined at the same time, if I remember right. Uh, by the way, Jim Gordon is one of my mentors. You were ahead of me. You had already gone to national. Okay. So <clears throat> when I joined Toastmasters in the local club, uh, one of the challenges that I ran into was even the people who were what they would call a distinguished Toastmaster uh, still had some communication skills that I'm like, I thought you would have worked those out by now. And then within the first 10 weeks that I was there, I finished the first 10 level of speeches, which most people took like a year to do. And then I was invited to compete. And so within the first year of being a Toastmaster, I competed in the international speech competition against 35,000 other people, and I made it to the semifinals. That was about the same time that I joined the John Maxwell team. I had already been coaching with the Dale Carnegie program for almost five years at that point. And I realized there were still a whole lot of people who loved communicating, but really they were more along the lines of, I keep talking and nobody's listening, or I keep talking and nobody's paying any attention. And part of the challenge that we run into as communicators is we have to be willing to admit, uh, if nobody's listening, maybe it's not their hearing problem, but your talking problem. It's not what they heard, but what you said. And so we've got to be able to take responsibility on both sides of that. But as I began to work with a lot of people, they would say to me, I want you to help me write the speech that sells. And I was like, uh, I don't do that. Why? Anybody ever heard uh, Les Brown? Yes. Yeah. So if you've ever heard Les Brown, what's the name of his speech? I can't remember. you got to be hungry. But if you've ever heard you got to be hungry, you've already heard you've got to be hungry. And so a lot of people look at somebody like a Les Brown and they say, well, he makes 50 grand every time he steps on stage. I want to make 50 grand when I step on stage. Teach me how to write. you got to be hungry. I'm like, well, you can't have you got to be hungry. It's already written. It's already been delivered a billion times. And it's powerful and it's thought-provoking and it's life-transforming, but it's his speech. How many of you have heard somebody deliver a speech or a story or a portion of a speech and realize, I've heard that before, right? And so the challenge we run into on both sides of that is, it's already been said before, and now you have a credibility problem. The other thing that I realized was that people had fascinating stories, but no point. How many of you have heard somebody say, I'm going to tell you a story. It really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm going to talk about today, but I think it's a great story. And they tell you the story, and when they're done, they're like, I'm not sure I told you that story, but I thought it was entertaining. And you're like, no, it was a waste of my time. <laughs> Raise your hand yeah. if you know that's true, oh, right? Yeah. And so you've heard that, and you're like, why do people do that? <laughs> and so that juxtaposition of frustration, I'm thinking on one side, there are all these people who have been trained to be communicators, and they still fail at communication. And then there are these people who are great orators, but they don't have anything to say. So where's the balance? How do, how do you strike that balance? What do you do? And so I was in front of a group that Jim and I used to belong to, and somebody told their story, and I said, why don't you try it like this? And so I told it like that. And they went, how did you do that? Anybody ever heard of Dr. Caroline Leaf, neuroscientist? She says, if, if you do something and people go, how did you do that? And you think to yourself, I thought everybody could do that. That's your gift. Mm -hmm. I went, oh, interesting. 
And so I started doing it on a regular basis. I'd hear somebody tell their story and I would tell them back. And I had a guy, I still have the business cards in my pocket because I had a guy show up at one of my events, sat through the whole thing. At the end of the day, he said, when I came here, I came because my friend drugged me. I don't go to seminars like this. I've been to way too many of them and I hate them. I'm like, well, I'm glad you stayed all day. He said, you know, the first hour, <laughs> I was ready to walk out. And then you told my story. And I realized this guy knows something I don't know. He said, but I think you've got the wrong name for your class. At the time, it was called Transforming Stories, Transforming Lives. I said, okay, what should it be? He said, I think you should call it, I can tell your story better than you can, and I can prove it. <laughs> and I had a pastor tell me that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard anybody say. And I said, well, if you play golf with Tiger Woods and he says, I'm going to beat you by 10 strokes, you argue with him? If you're playing basketball with Michael Jordan and he says, I'm going to dunk this ball, do you go, yeah, right. No. If Shaq says, I will keep you out of the key, do you say, yeah, not today? No. Because you realize they're the best at what they do. So in honest humility, we're about to test that theory, and we'll see if I'm right, if the gift holds its weight. And we're going to do that by inviting all of you to come up here one at a time. But here is a master teacher on storytelling, and I learned so much. Um, I'm really going to have to sit down and go back through everything, and I think I might have to have some more coffees with Lauren, but uh, it was totally worth my time, and I really highly recommend it if you're looking to grow your ministry, grow your business, uh, grow your career. Uh, Lauren will serve you well. Thank you.